0: Did you finish your test before midnight last week? Or they kick you out? <laughs> did you make your fundraiser? Yes, we did. Did he? Uh, yeah. Did he? Really well. Did he test 100%? Wow, it was worth the extra time man. No, they worked very good.
1: Where are we going to go in Good evening, is that work? There we go. Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. glad you've chosen to come for Monday night. Our double-header topics tonight, resolving emotional pain and resolving bitterness. Wow, we've got a full evening, don't we? And what we want to do is offer this time to the Lord, and uh, I'd invite you to stand, and let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we just are confident in the fact that you know all things. Lord, right now, as we stand here in your presence, you know the condition of each one of our hearts. You know what we're dealing with. You know what we're going through. You know all of that and you love us. And Lord, we just thank you so much for your unconditional love. We thank you for the fact that there's no place we can go to get away from you to avoid your presence you're there and that you go before us and Lord we desire tonight for your Holy Spirit to go before us to be there to meet us to speak to us through John we thank you for the ministry of caring for the heart we just pray your blessing upon them we pray your anointing upon John tonight as he shares and how we can um, allow you through your word to give us victory in these areas so we just commit this evening to you we pray all of this in your name Amen. Amen.
2: alright you're already standing that's good we're gonna sing a couple of songs as we prepare for this evening first song I'd like us to sing is Lord I lift your name on high
3: Thank you for coming this evening. Um, Appreciate you taking the time this evening to uh, share this evening together. I'd like to begin this evening by talking about how people are damaged and how they become bitter uh, in their lives. And then after the break, we're gonna talk about emotional pain. If you purchase the Biblical Concepts Counseling Workbook, we're gonna be in chapter two on page 29. Is, or excuse me, 27, is where we're going to be focusing on this evening. When you ask people about their pain inside, often they say, I'm fine. Uh, most people have figured out how to not allow themselves to feel their pain. And as a result of that, if you ask them, are you bitter, they're going to say no. If you take the, your sheet that I passed out on the back side of it, I took the time to list all the different ways people react to pain. Um, some people detach from their pain. They pull a switch, they never get depressed, but they don't feel. They don't allow themselves to feel pain. Pain comes, they have people rejecting them, they have people angry at them, but they choose not to feel. And that's the first way people respond to pain. I call that an emotionally detached person, a person that will not allow pain to come in. That person will not be depressed, but they will never cry at funerals. They have no feelings, they have no joy, they've shut off their emotions in their heart. The second way people react is by disassociating. About 15% of the people coming into my office emotionally disassociate from their pain. Disassociation is when a person has too much pain as a child and they emotionally lose memory or they mentally check out from their pain. A pastor came into my office recently and he said, John, I'm dyslexic. I can't count. And when I read my Bible, I have to read the same line four times before I can figure out what it says. I said, who diagnosed you dyslexic? And he says, I went to a doctor and he says, dyslexia is when you can't um, focus, and your mind's not focusing right. I said, I think you have a different problem. I think you had too much pain in your childhood and you lost memory. Can you tell me about pain in your childhood. And he said, well, I was in the second grade. The teacher pressured me to count and pressured me so hard my mind just went blank. I said, that's disassociation. He became a contractor in California before he became a pastor. And he's very committed to Christ. And he said when he would go and buy rebar at the lumber yard, uh, he couldn't count rebar. He had never, ever been able to count since in the second grade. So I said to him, um, would you like to get free from this? Would you like to be able to count? And he said, uh, I guess so, never thought about that. But he would count rebar by saying, give me those two bundles, and he never counted it. And he took it to the work site, and then he had to always take it back. And he'd done that for 20 years. So I had his wife put her arm around him and connect emotionally with him. And I pulled a bunch of pens out of my drawer like this, about 25 of them. And I said, with your wife loving you and caring about you, how many pens do I have? And he counted them perfect. I said, every time you go to the lumber yard from now on, you have to take your wife and she has to put her arm around you. Because if you feel loved, you can't disassociate. Two weeks later he called me and he says, John, I can count now, I don't have any problem. A pastor and his wife from Ontario, Canada came uh, into my office and she had never learned to read or write. She grew up in Mexico, uh, among the Mexico Mennonites, and the old colony Mennonites refused to let their children go to school. Many of the families had 12 to 16 children. And those children worked the farm. They picked the beans and strawberries, whatever they were growing. And they had large families so that they would have plenty of help when they grew up. This particular girl, every time she picked up a book to read, her daddy got angry at her and said, Why aren't you out helping your mother? Or why aren't you out helping on the farm? And he got angry at her every time she tried to read something or tried to learn. She was never allowed to go to school. She had never learned to read or write. She was a pastor's wife and in order to lead her ladies Bible study, her daughter-in-law had to read the lesson to her and she had to remember everything that was read to her in order to discuss the lesson with the ladies. And That was really overwhelming for her. So I showed her husband how to care about her heart And he put his arm around his wife and I just had him look at her eyes and said, can I care about a little girl who was damaged by her daddy's anger? What if I cared about her heart and uh, cared about the pain that she experienced in her childhood? Then I took a paragraph off of a piece of paper and I said, would you be willing just to read this while your husband is um, putting his arm around you? She read it perfect. I said, you never went to school, but you can read. The problem is every time you felt pressure to read, your mind just checked out. That's disassociation. And I said, um, ask your husband if he would be willing to spend 10 minutes a day uh, putting his arm around you while you read your Bible. She said, I would love that. I've never been able to read my Bible. I haven't read anything. Six weeks later, she emailed me and she says, my husband doesn't have to put his arm around me anymore, I can read by myself. Um, then she, um, I also had her write a note to her husband and she only misspelled two words she had never written ever before in her life. I share these stories because disassociation is a real thing. And disassociation begins in childhood when a person is damaged And God allows children to have an ability to lose memory whenever the pain gets too much. For example, you can have a girl that's sexually abused and she won't remember her sexual abuse, it was way too painful. And God allows that for children. The problem is when people grow up and they're still disassociating, uh, that becomes a problem and they can't focus. So the second way people respond to uh, pain is by disassociating. The third is by self-focusing on their pain and becoming depressed. Many people, when you step on their pain, they go into three hours, three days of depression. And they just feel like nobody cares about them and they have 20 to 30 negative thoughts. Another way people respond is by seeking to control other people around them. Whenever someone creates pain, they become dominant. Some people react with anger. Some people become critical when you step on their pain. Some people stop talking. Some people walk away. I had one couple that I was counseling that had a horse, and he would walk out the front door to the horse, the wife would walk out the back door to the horse, and they both were connected to their horse, but they couldn't connect to each other. And they got frustrated when the other one got to the horse first because they were both married to their horse. That couple happened to come from Hutcheson, and um, they were both responding by walking away from their pain. Other people respond with alcohol and drugs. Every person that drinks is covering pain. I ask people in my office, how many beers does it take before you forget your pain? The last guy says nine beers and I don't remember anything my wife says to me. Uh, They're covering pain with drugs. Every person that's on marijuana is covering pain. Some people use lust to cover their pain. And tomorrow night I'm going to be talking about moral failure, we're going to talk about moral addiction, homosexuality, those issues. What I found is every person that has a moral addiction has either not emotionally been loved properly, or secondly, has emotional pain they're covering. And we'll talk about that tomorrow night. Another way people respond to pain is they work, they perform. Um, This is probably in our Mennonite culture, the way we respond to pain. Most Mennonites are very disciplined people. And so whenever pain comes, they just work harder and then that way they don't feel their pain. Some people lie to protect themselves. Some people defy, you're not going to tell me what to do. Some people, every time you go into their pain, they clown. Everything's funny. I had two people that were angry at 99, felt rejected at 99 by each other, depressed at 99. And when I had them face each other, and they looked at each other, they both started laughing. They had damaged damage each other in 20 years of marriage so severely, and everything was a joke but they had never been serious about how they actually destroyed each other in their marriage. Some people freeze up. I have people talking nonstop in my office because they don't want me to get close to their pain, so they just talk for three hours straight. I have other people that tune out, just disengage from pain. That's similar to detach. And then I have people who just focus their thoughts elsewhere so they don't have to deal with their pain. All I did was took, in the last few years, every way people respond to pain in my office, and I made a list. I would like for you to look down this list and ask yourself the question, how do I respond to pain? Sometimes people have two of these, sometimes they have four of them, sometimes they have ten of these in the way they respond to pain. As believers, what we want to do is we want to resolve our pain so we don't have to react to it. And there are two ways to resolve pain. One is to forgive the person who damaged us, uh, to resolve the bitterness within our hearts. And we're going to talk about that first tonight. The second way is to go to Jesus in prayer and let Jesus heal the pain that another person has demonstrated toward us. And we're going to talk about that in the second half tonight. Those two ways can actually alleviate Uh, eighty percent of your pain, you still have the memory, but you don't have the pain that you're carrying in your heart as a result of what other people have done emotionally to damage you. You and I cannot change what others do or say to us. We can't control other individuals, how they respond. We can't even control what we experience. And often what happens is we can become bitter toward the experiences in life because we don't know how to respond to them. Proverbs 14.10 says, a heart knows its own bitterness. Each person, if you ask them, how are you damaged, knows the pain they've experienced. The question is, how can we disconnect our bitterness? How can we forgive another person? And I would like for you to think with me about bitterness tonight. Bitterness involves three things. First of all, our memories of how other people have hurt us in the past. Secondly, our attitude toward others for what they have done is involved in why we become bitter. And thirdly, our feelings of pain, our emotional response to that pain, the hurt that we experienced when other people have damaged us. The Bible says there are two biblical consequences if bitterness is not resolved. The first is that a failure to confess bitterness will lead to other problems in your life. In Ephesians 4.31 it says, Bitterness will lead to anger. Anger will lead to wrath. Wrath will lead to clamor. Clamor will lead to evil speaking. Evil speaking will lead to malice. Now if you take the Greek words there and define them, The first word is bitterness. The second word is the word wrath in the King James, which means sudden outbursts of anger. So if a person is bitter, the first step is they all of a sudden will become angry, but then it will subside. The third word is the word translated anger, settled continuous anger. So sudden outburst of anger leads to continuous anger. That leads to the word clamor, which means violent arguments. Every time that person's name is mentioned, we get intensely upset inside. That leads to evil speaking, where we attack the person who's damaged us. And finally, that leads to malice, inner hatred of the heart. Now, when someone comes into my office and I find out that they've been damaged, I ask them, which of these steps have you... uh, ways you've responded to the pain you've gone through. Or more practically, we can look at it this way. Bitterness leads to resentment. Resentment leads to anger. Anger leads to depression. Depression leads to despair. Despair leads to suicidal thoughts. Minrath Myra make this statement, 100% of every person hospitalized for depression the causes unresolved anger. In other words, if anyone is clinically depressed where they have to be hospitalized, they have held anger in, which comes as a result of bitterness, unresolved, and they have no way of releasing that bitterness inside. So the first consequence of bitterness is that it's going to lead to other problems in a person's life. The second consequence of bitterness is that a failure to confess bitterness will bring defilement to other believers. Hebrews 12.15 says if you let a root of bitterness grow what happens is the majority of people around you are going to become bitter Um, because of the root of bitterness that's in one's heart. Um, Others will be negatively affected by our bitterness. It only takes one bitter person build a whole network of people who are bitter and frustrated. What are the evidences of unresolved bitterness? A person who's bitter often becomes critical of other people. Secondly, they're insensitive to other people's needs. They're so focused on their own pain, they don't notice another person's need. The third is that they become ungrateful for what other people have done for them because they're focused on the negative things instead of appreciating what uh, others have done for them. Often they try and get even through revenge. They have trouble trusting people for fear they're going to be hurt again. They often become depressed and they become angry. So these seven uh, characteristics are evidences that a person has bitterness within their heart. It's interesting when you think of anger, if you uh, have an angry person and they blow up, they attack other people, they feel guilty and destroy relationships. But if a person is angry and they hold their anger in, they damage themselves and feel rejected and get depressed. People who hold their anger in often uh, experience depression in their personal life and that's usually the way we as believers respond to pain. But the key is, in the middle of the chart that you see in the back of me, when you forgive a person, you release them from the emotional pain they've caused you. And we're going to describe in a minute how when you are willing to pay the emotional consequences, of their pain caused to you, what happens is you become free from anger, free from bitterness, free from depression and the cycle doesn't continue. One of the important things about bitterness is we need to know the cause because a person is never bitter because they decide one morning to be bitter. No, bitterness always has a reason, a cause. And when you're wanting to help someone who's bitter, you want to go find, why are you bitter? Something has happened. Someone said something, someone did something, someone emotionally damaged you. Bitterness is never the core problem. I often like to say it this way. 80% of people who have spiritual problems, the cause is emotional, uh, emotionally caused issues within their heart. And when you go to the emotional issues, what happens is a person's bitterness goes away. I used to lead people 10 years ago to confess their bitterness, their bitterness toward their father, their mother, toward others in the church that have hurt them in the community. Until I realized if I resolved what caused that by leading them in a prayer with the issues that damaged them, their bitterness will fall away. So now I've changed my approach, and I go and resolve the emotional pain that a person has experienced that led to that bitterness. For example, if a person had an angry, critical father, if you resolve the pain that that caused in their heart, they will no longer be bitter toward that person. So you want to get to the root of what caused that problem, and when you do that, people lose their bitterness toward other people, when you identify and resolve the cause. Another focus is we need to understand that bitterness always resides in the heart. If you study what Jesus said, all sin resides in the heart. All emotional pain is in the heart. So when you intellectually tell people you should forgive that person, why are you holding that against them? That does no good, it just frustrates them because intellectually, you can't release another person. Bitterness has to be released from the heart. It's in the emotional pain area where bitterness resides. It's interesting also that a person's emotional pain is often repeated in their life. What I mean by that is this, and I'm going to use a very simple example. If you had an angry mother who was critical, 90% of the time you'll be attracted to an angry, critical husband and you'll have an angry, critical teacher and you'll react in church to everybody who's angry and critical. You won't react to something else, but you'll react to that. Another thing I've noticed is if you had a depressed mother and you couldn't stand being around your mother because she drained you, and we're going to talk about that in the second session, what happens is Ninety percent of the time you're going to marry a depressed spouse. You not only will react to your mother who is depressed, your spouse who is depressed, but you're not going to enjoy anybody in the church who's depressed. They're going to frustrate you. Why can't they just get it together? Why do they always have to be talking about their problems? And you're going to react to the same thing. Now, all of us don't react to everything. None of us have been damaged by every issue out there. We each have been damaged uh, in specific ways uh, through things we uh, didn't receive and also through emotional pain issues and that becomes what we react to personally. I'd just like to ask you a personal question. If you were to put in one phrase what you react to that you can't stand, that was in your childhood, um, in your adult experience, what would that be? Just think about it for a minute. In my situation, it was, if someone expects something of me I can't accomplish, and they're frustrated with me or angry with me, and they're controlling, domineering, and they're expressive, they talk nonstop. If you put those four pain issues together, I struggle with depression. And I had a depression from 15 to 35. And my depression always came when those four pressures came, but I didn't understand it. And because I didn't understand it, I didn't know how to resolve it. And no one else knew how to resolve it either, because I talked to other pastors and they just said, oh, just get over it. You know, you need to read your Bible more. That didn't help me because it didn't resolve the issues until I understood where that came from. And in my pastoral ministry, if you were to ask me, John, how often did this repeat itself? There were five times, once in my childhood and four times in pastoral ministry, where those four pains were stepped on and emotionally struggled inside my heart. I share that because everyone has what I'm going to call a core emotional pain issue. Some people have more than one, very few people have more than three. The lady whose testimony I shared last night in the video, uh, she had many more because of all the pain that she experienced. What is forgiveness? First of all, forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness involves somebody paying uh, for a failure. Now, there are two kinds of sin. There's a sin you can pay for, and there's a sin you can't pay for. If I steal a thousand dollars from one of you and I pay it back a week later with hundred dollars interest uh, I can pay back if I stole something from you. But the Bible says in Proverbs if you commit adultery against your wife you can't pay for that. There's no amount of money that will pay if you commit adultery. You can give your wife a million dollars it's not going to take her pain away if you as a man have committed adultery. If you emotionally damage your son by ruining his self-worth, by criticizing and being angry with him, you can't pay for that. You can give him 80 acres of land to try and compensate for the pain you caused him, but it's not going to take away his pain. You cannot pay for that. So, forgiveness is costly. Either the person who sinned pays for his own sin, Or the person who's been hurt assumes the responsibility to pay the emotional pain the other person caused them. So forgiveness is one person paying the emotional pain of another person's wrong. You say, but that's not fair. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was in heaven with his father. And for 4,000 years or excuse me, 6,000 years before the cross. God saw the rebelliousness of the human race and the whole Old Testament is a story of that. And God was emotionally hurt because people didn't worship him, didn't respond to him, didn't follow him. And you have the flood, you have the Israelites rebelling against him. But God decided he was going to come in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son, and He was going to put all the sins of all the world, every sin on Jesus Christ on the cross. You say, that's not fair. Jesus, who was in heaven, never sinned. And when He came to the earth, He never sinned. But all the sins of the world were placed on Him. And whoever believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins became a child of God. It's interesting, God chose to pay for a problem that he didn't cause. Now forgiveness involves the person who's hurt being willing to assume responsibility for the emotional damage another person has caused them. So if you've been damaged, first of all, you have to ask the question, can that person pay for the sin they caused me? There are a few sins that people commit against us that they can correct, but the majority of sins they can't correct, which means you and I have to be willing to pay the emotional pain that person caused us. Forgiveness, thirdly, is substitutional. Forgiveness is one person being willing to take responsibility for another person's failure. And it's not fair. I'll never forget, a wife came into my office, her husband, and she had been missionaries for 25 years. And she, he had been immoral uh, during that 25 years, uh, defrauding other women, uh, connecting with old girlfriends and fondling them. And they came into my office because they wanted me to convince their son not to live with his girlfriend. So I asked him to list all of his moral sins, and he had touched 300 single girls in this mission over a period of 25 years. His wife struggled when she found out that information. She had no idea he was doing this. And after the session, she called me and she says, "Uh, John, I need to talk to you. So she came back to my office. And I shared with her that you have a choice. If your husband paid you a million dollars, assuming he had a million dollars, would you just forget this? And she got angry and she says, I can't forget it. It's too painful. And I said, that's what Proverbs says. You cannot pay for moral sin. It's impossible. There's no amount of money that will do that. I said there's only one other choice and that is if you're willing to take the emotional pain that you're feeling right now and you take responsibility for that and say I will pay the emotional pain that your sin caused me. That's what Jesus did on the cross. She looked at me and she says I don't know if I can do that and I said that's all right I just want you to pray. And she went home that evening and she prayed. The next morning, she came back to the office. Her husband is sitting in a chair. She was sitting in a chair. Before I opened in prayer, she looked at her husband and said, I thought last night for a long time. And I made a decision that I'm going to pay the emotional pain that you caused me through your immoral actions for these last 25 years. You're free to go. I'm not going to hold it against you. But I'm going to pay if I'm frustrated, if I'm angry, if I'm depressed. I'm going to take responsibility for my own pain for the sin you caused me. The husband said, that's not fair. I was the one who sinned. You didn't sin. You were committed to our six children. You were faithful. You never did anything wrong morally. I should be willing to pay. I should be able to pay. And she said, do you have a million dollars? He said, no. She said, even if you had a million dollars, it would not even start to pay for the pain I'm feeling today. And that's why I've chosen to pay. Now, I've sat in my office with over 200 adultery cases. And I've never fixed an adultery case without explaining this, because the person who commits adultery can't pay. Proverbs says that. And we'll talk, we'll show you the verse tomorrow night. And the only solution to adultery is if the person who's been hurt through adultery is willing to pay the emotional pain of that person's failure against them. On page 27 in your notebook is this particular chart. And I use this chart to help people understand forgiveness. When God chose to look at our sin, he had a choice. It could have required justice and made you and I pay for our sin. There's a problem. You and I were born in sin. So even if we never sinned once, we could never have a relationship with God. And our sin separated us from God. But God, instead of requiring justice, chose to forgive us, which means he took all of our sin and he placed our sin on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross. And the moment you and I, by faith, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, we were released from the penalty of our sins. Every time I think about that, I'm amazed that God would care about me so much to be willing to forgive me of my sin. He didn't have to do that, but He chose to do that. In the bottom half of the chart, you see a man whose wife has hurt him. Let's assume she has committed adultery against him. If he requires justice, you have to pay for your sin. I'm not going to release you from your sin of adultery, but I want you to make it up to me. He's going to become a resentful, bitter, angry man. But I encourage people, instead of requiring justice, to forgive. Forgiveness means you're willing to assume personal responsibility for the emotional pain that wife's sin caused you. The result is you're free from resentment, bitterness, and anger. When I was 13 years of age, I grew up on a farm in Newton, east of Newton, and my father had five sons. And he had a corporation planned uh, for five of his sons. It was in the early 60s. Um, I was in school, high school, college during those years. I didn't know my father had planned a corporation. And I would accepted Christ at the age of 13. Age of 14 I went to a Bible camp and felt led to go to the mission field. And I wanted to please God and I wanted to please my father and uh, my father's goals were going this way. I felt God's design going this way or desire going this way. And when I was 14 years of age, my father began to lecture me with expectations. And I wanted to please God, I wanted to please my father. I was submissive, um, quiet young man, never challenged my father, never disobeyed my father. But I wanted to please them both, but I couldn't please them both. And I became depressed voted the quietest person in my high school class. I didn't know what depression was, but for the next 20 years, every time that pressure came in whatever form, I struggled. It's interesting, I was preparing a message later on when I was a pastor. And I was identifying how God forgives us for our sins and how I am to forgive another person. That was the basis of my message. And on this side, God paid the penalty for my sin. I was free to go. And this was during the overhead projector times before the computer uh, and the PowerPoints and I needed a tab for this sign. All of a sudden I realized if I was to be free, I needed to release my dad and I needed to be willing to pay the emotional pain my dad caused me, the depression. The frustration, the inability to communicate, all of that was tied to what happened when I was 14 years of age. When I released my father I lost my depression because my depression was caused by my bitterness which led to frustration, which led um, to the depression that I was experiencing. And this particular chart came out, that's when I was 35 years ago, uh, came out of that experience. There are four keys to forgiveness and I understood two of those when I was 35 but I've added two because when you add all four of these a person really experiences freedom. The first key is to release the person who has hurt you. You're free to go. I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. The second is to be willing to pay the emotional pain that person's failure caused you. This last week, my wife and I listened to Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place, the book on CD, while we were driving back from Florida. And uh, Betsy was forgiving the person they called the snake who barked orders to them. She forgave the people who beat them because they weren't doing enough work in the concentration camp. And she released all those individuals and she prayed for them. Amazing thing that God gave her grace to do that. The third step is to release the pain within. Jesus, what do you want me to do with the pain I've experienced as a result of what this person did to me? You don't want to hold that pain inside. That's what leads to bitterness and anger. Jesus, what do you want me to do with that pain? I was in my office recently and a lady had a lot of pain from her background and I led her in a prayer, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my pain? And Jesus said, give it to me. And then I led the lady, what are you going to do with my pain? And Jesus said, I'm going to hurl it over Pikes Peak, we're in Colorado Springs, over Pikes Peak into the Pacific Ocean. Another lady, what do you want me to do with my pain? And she saw a picture of Jesus lowering a rope with a suitcase and Jesus prompted her put all your garbage in the suitcase. She put all of her pain in the suitcase and Jesus took the suitcase away. Some people when you ask them, what do you want me to do with your pain? Jesus prompts, just it at the cross. I died for you, you can give it to me. I'll take it from you. You see, if you hold your pain inside, if you carry your pain, you stay bitter. But we want to ask Jesus, what do you want me to do with this pain? Because if you can get it out of your heart, out of where your emotions are, what happens is you can experience freedom. And then the fourth step is, Jesus, could you heal my heart from what happened to me? If you forget everything I say in this session, don't forget these four things. Because whether you need to release someone who's hurt you, or you have a friend that needs to release, these are the four steps that are key. Release the person, pay the emotional pain, release the pain, and let Jesus heal the heart. A number of years ago, while I was pastoring, I received a call from New York State. A lady says, my father's dying in Colorado Springs, would you go see him? I said, I'd be glad to. So I knock on this trailer house door and a man is dying of lung cancer and he comes to me and he says, What do you want? I said, I'm a pastor from a local church. Your daughter called and he says, Yeah, she's tried to save me for the last 20 years. I'm sick and tired of her. I don't want to talk to you. And I said, I've come to care about you because your daughter says you only have six weeks to live. And I just want to be a friend care about your heart. He says, come on in. So I went in, he pulled himself up. He was on his hands and knees. He couldn't walk very well because of his pain. He pulled himself up into a chair in the kitchen table and I sat across the table and he told me of all his two million sins. And I shared with him that those sins could be resolved because Jesus died on the cross for them, and you could have them all released before you pass away. At first he got angry because his daughter had pressured him to be saved. Pretty soon he listened to me, and the third session I had with him, he invited Jesus into his heart to forgive his two million sins. The next time I came to visit him, he says, John, I'm really angry. I said, why are you angry? He says, my daughter-in-law and my son took us back to New York to visit our friends. And on the way back from New York, my daughter-in-law kept yelling at my, my wife. And when we got home, she had a heart attack and died. And my wife was my only friend. And I'm dying of cancer now and I have no friends, no one to hold me, no one to touch me, no one to get my medicine. I'm in this trailer house all by myself. No one's here to care. And I says would you be willing to forgive your daughter-in-law at first he fought me and then I went to the passage in the gospels where Jesus told a story of a man who owed billions of dollars and he refused to forgive the one who owed a small amount and I told him that story and I says you mentioned that you had 2 million sins your daughter-in-law sinned against you. If God forgave you two million cents, would you be willing to forgive your daughter-in-law the one sin? At first he says, you're making me do this. And he got angry. Finally he says, okay, I'll do it. And I took a napkin off of the kitchen table and I wrote, I'm willing to pay. Or Lord, I choose to forgive my daughter-in-law for taking the life of my wife, my only friend, causing me to be lonely, alone during the last days of my life, in pain. And I'm willing to pay the emotional pain that my daughter-in-law caused me. And I saw this gentleman who was very weak try to spit out those words. The next morning he called me and he says, John, I didn't only forgive my daughter-in-law. I forgot, all my kids stole everything that was valuable, all my coin collections, all my silver dollars, they took everything away from me. So I forgave them last night and he says, I am so happy today. He says, you just lifted a thousand pounds off my shoulders when you came in and you showed me that little prayer you put on the napkin. He was released. Two weeks later, I received a phone call. Uh, Phil was dying. And I went into the home. The daughter-in-law that killed his wife by yelling at her was feeding him chicken noodle soup. And he had a big smile on his face. He had nothing against her. Five minutes later, he passed away. I often wish I was in heaven as a little mouse at the entrance of heaven when he met Jesus. Because just a few weeks before, Jesus forgave him two million sins and just a few weeks before he died he chose to forgive someone else that had damaged him that's forgiveness and it's a beautiful thing. If you turn to page 29 in your workbooks uh, we have these charts the first chart is a chart where you list family members that damaged you the second column you put How they damaged you. The last column you put emotional pain words. Like an example would be, My mother was depressed, causing me to feel drained, empty, frustrated, overwhelmed, would be the emotional pain words. At the bottom is the prayer, Lord, I choose to forgive for causing me to feel, and I'm willing to pay the emotional pain and consequences that my mother's caused me. The next sheet is all your friends. Employers, believers, uh, other people who have damaged you, and again you list the issues and the emotional pain. Then you list your spouse, the first column, and the emotional pain your spouse has caused you. In seminars like this, I've had husbands and wives just take these three sheets, fill them out, pray through them, and at midnight, after a session like this, they flip on a honeymoon because they're forgiving each other, they're forgiving everybody else. What happens is all the anger goes out, all the bitterness goes out of their heart, and their heart opens to connect in relationship with each other. There's a term in the Bible only used twice, it's called forbearance. I never understood it for years, never even noticed it in the Bible. Forgiveness involves people who have damaged me in the past. You forgive people who have hurt you in the past. Forbearance is what if they keep on hurting you? What if you have a boss who constantly pressures you and is angry with you and never accepts you and treats someone else better than he treats you? What do you do with a boss who keeps doing that? The Bible says that Jesus, excuse me, God, in heaven forbears. Ephesians four two and Colossians 3.13. The word forbear means to bear with, to pass over, to accept. God never has a bad day in heaven because you and I do something wrong. He just forbears. If you go to the bottom part of that chart Paul challenges us to, like God forbears, we are to forbear. So if you have a boss who is constantly pressuring and angry, instead of reacting to that, you choose to release that pain and not allow it come in. And so you bear with that person, pass over and accept that person rather than becoming bitter and resentful and the rest of your life is damaged by that person. Now all of us in our lives, have been damaged by somebody some more than others. Last night Alexandria's testimony was a testimony of uh, horrible pain and often I meet people like that that have experienced a lot of pain. In a community like this maybe the pain, the bitterness would be less, problems less. Nevertheless bitterness can root itself in our heart and create a dynamic where our spiritual lives are destroyed. The wonderful thing is God has given you and I the privilege of releasing those people from the damage they have caused us. Bitterness most often affects us. The damage comes to us, not to the person who's damaged us, but when you hold bitterness, it negatively affects our response to them. I'd like to um, end this first half of the evening by having you watch a video, or a DVD, of a couple from Ontario who became bitter toward each other, became angry at each other. They both had a pride problem, it's only about me. They both had a rebellious problem, you're not going to tell me what to do. They developed a bitterness problem on top of that, and they refused to budge. And they came into my office and I'd like for you just to watch this 10 minute clip before the break um, because it's a demonstration of a couple who actually released their issues of pride, rebellion and bitterness toward each other and anger to come to freedom.
4: with John?
5: I really can't tell you what happened in the office except all I knew was that there was a man who cared about us. I remember sitting in the office and I didn't know if I could trust this man because I've sat in front of counselors before. who just didn't have a clue what they were talking about and who would actually themselves fling accusations that I knew weren't true. Or they would take sides with the husband for a while or take sides with the wife for a while. But this man Cared about my heart, <laughs> cared about the pain that was there, and that had been sitting there for years and years. Finally there was something inside me that said I can trust him, and I will, I will open up.
4: I don't want you to think that, that um, it was all my wife's problem. Um, because I I know that I have a heart of mercy and when my wife broke in John's office, when when he managed to get into her heart and show her that I really wanted to care for her, she broke down. And I started to cry and I started to sympathize with her. That was me. That always has been me.
5: I just remember him asking questions about my pain and I was able to share areas of my pain. And I remember it came out of my mouth how I just felt like I had totally wrecked my husband's life. The farm was one of the dearest things to him, and he loved the farm, he loved working on the farm. And I was the cause of us losing the farm. And that was a great deal of pain when I finally realized that I was responsible for that. Because I just forced the issue for us to sell the farm. And then I saw my husband grieve the loss of the farm for years after that. And I always knew it was my fault. But, It just had me turn to my husband and ask his forgiveness, and he forgave me right then and there. That burden that I carried all those years was forgiven on the spot. John told us at the end of the week that that this was the toughest case he had ever had. He usually gets it figured out the second day what the problem was, and he was driving home at the end of Wednesday. We were only gonna be there till Friday, and he still did not know what the root problem was with us. So he was crying out to the Lord to give him an answer, and he said the Lord gave him one word, pride. And we found out a couple uh, couple weeks later when we were telling the story to our youngest daughter, that she was home that very night on a Wednesday night crying out to God herself, saying, Lord, would you show my parents how much pride they have and how destructive it is to our family. And uh, that day, actually the Wednesday myself, when we were out driving in the mountains in Colorado, it was like a window opened up and I saw how self-focused I was how that I was just turned watching my own pain, trying to run around in life looking after my own pain. Always trying to look after these feelings inside and uh, wondering how did I ever get to this state in life when there was supposed to be someone there who cared about my heart.
4: And although I would say maybe 70, 80% of issues were cleaned up and John's office, there was still that 20 to 30 percent, the occasional outbursts. But with John's help and, and his encouragement to care for the heart, it, um, it helped me to know how to care for my wife.
5: When we went home, we were warned that there would be difficulties and we would get some help to to get our lives on track at having a connected relationship and there were some things that happened at home that would just arouse that sense of hate again. But the only difference this time was I'm not going to try and stuff it and hide it how I really felt. And I remember being hurt one time so badly by Carl and I went into my bedroom and I said, okay Lord you've given us advice that we're just to be honest with our feelings. And right now I have to say I hate." hate the ground. He walks on. If that's what you want to hear from me, for me to be honest, but Lord, I don't want to have those feelings. I don't want to have hate in my heart. I don't want to be resentful. Uh, I want to care about his pain and why that happened. I want to start looking out, not just at what's going on in me, but look at what's going on in him and But I was still in so much pain, I said, Lord, you have to look after my pain. And I know the Lord clearly spoke and said,
4: just wait. Just wait. And about a year and a half later, I was finally convinced that God had really done a work in my wife's life, and now it's my turn. I. I remember sitting, reading my Bible one day, and God said to me, He said, Now, I've done a work in your wife's life, and now I've got to deal with your bitterness towards her. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I thought, okay. interesting thing was John was coming to do a seminar at a church about a month later. So I had this little niggling that God is going to do something in my life. And I said, I said to my wife, I know that John didn't get me, <laughs> if you want to say it that way. John, John didn't hit my heart when we were in his office. And, and my, my wife would say, yes, he did. You broke down, you crashed just like I did. I said, but honey, I know that I was just feeling so sorry for you that I just cried at your pain. And it gave my wife a whole new light. But I knew that God was dealing with me about the bitterness that I had for all the pain that my wife had caused me. And that I had to, I now had some issues to deal with. So for the next month, the Lord worked on me, and John came to our church, and he did a seminar the very first night, John talked about bitterness, and he showed all the if you if you are bitter, you will have this result, that result, and this result, and eventually it ends up in suicide and uh well, I wasn't even anywhere as close to that, but I could see myself walking up these steps of the ladder, and uh yeah. I knew I had shut down my heart. I knew I had shut down my heart. And I said to him, but Lord, what about the times when I got all that hurt? What about the times when, I, when there was pain? He said to me, Carl, that's when you responded wrongly. When you didn't love your wife, when you didn't care for her like I want you to care for her. I can't protect you when you don't do that. And I went to the Lord and asked forgiveness for responding improperly. And I asked him to give me a word picture of what it would be like to respond properly. The Lord put a heart of gold into my heart. Because I had responded properly. God wants us men to love our wives. God wants men with hearts of gold. He wants to build families with hearts of gold. I know he wants me to love my wife in all her pain.
5: We just learned gradually how to take our pain to Jesus and let him, let him show us uh, things about life and ourselves and to comfort us and encourage us, care about our hearts, and just to have relationship. It was a brand new feeling. It was a brand new feeling. And my husband cared for me in such a way that I just fell totally in love with him. I was shocked that I could go from such intense hatred to such intense love and, um, and to think that it would be so easy to be in that emotion and choose to divorce when inside of one day you could be so in love with that person.
4: My wife has become my best friend.
5: I think I got the greatest guy in the world. I don't know how I ever could have felt the way I felt before.
1: Reminded of the passage in scripture that talks about breaking up that fallow ground, that, that hard, crusty ground. And sometimes our hearts can be that way. And so powerful video testimony of, of what God can do in our hearts. At this time we want to take an offering and so ask the ushers to get ready and let's, uh, let's pray at this time. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the challenge that we've received. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have that we don't have to remain in some of these conditions especially a condition of bitterness, knowing the eventual outcome, knowing the, the downward spiral that that, that uh, means for us if we hold on to bitterness, uh, if we allow a root of bitterness to come into our lives and not uh, deal with it. And so Lord, we just thank you for the ministry of caring for the heart. We thank you for these words this, this uh, evening from John and we we pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would, would penetrate our hearts. And we thank you for this opportunity that we can give to further this ministry and help with the expenses. And so we just pray now that you would bless this offering. In your name, amen.
2: Shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my regard, and through it. of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea. So let go.
1: trust that that is our prayer we are about 10 minutes till 8 so let's take a 15 minute break and be back at 805